Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 81st episode of our podcast, I interviewed Richard DeLude, co-founder and partner at Underscore VC. Richard has a really interesting background with a multifaceted career. He was a professional skier competing for a spot on the U.S. Olympic team, turned programmer, turned entrepreneur, and now a venture capitalist. In his current role at Underscore VC, he's leading the firm's investments in the areas of blockchain, AI, machine learning, XR, and serverless technologies. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what it's like competing for a spot on the Olympic team while studying engineering at an Ivy League school, Richard's career including his time working on the pricing strategy for iTunes at Apple, and helping to launch the direct-to-consumer e-commerce business for Procter & Gamble, the story of how Underscore VC came to be, and all the details behind the firm plus what they're targeting in terms of their investments, his thoughts on whether entrepreneurs are born or made, what areas of technology he's interested in right now, advice for founders raising capital, how to determine valuations, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, are you hiring? If yes, you should definitely consider adding a BizPage subscription for your company. It is an employment branding solution that helps you engage with our targeted audience of professionals in the Boston tech scene across all functional areas. If you're interested in learning more, please send an email to info at All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Richard. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Keith. All right, so one of the reasons why I love doing these podcasts is I get to dig deep into the person's background. And digging through your background, I realized that you have this history where you were part of the United States ski team. Uh, so I want to start talking about that. Like, so, so were you like trying to compete like for like the Olympics? Like, what, what was yeah, the well, goal there? Yeah, well, it's you, you've certainly done your homework. You, you know, dug deep into the history, and uh, yeah, the, I had the good fortune to grow up in Colorado. Uh, just outside of a ski town, uh, ski town was Vail, uh, and grew up skiing. It was one of these things of 18 months old, you're just kind of on these things. And, um, you know, that's when you started skiing. Yeah. yeah, Very early. Um, you know, had a family that was into it because otherwise it's kind of a ridiculous sport to go stand out in the cold, put these plastic things on your feet and just do it. Uh, and so grew up doing that, uh, at 17, ended up, uh, making the U S ski team. Wow. Uh, which was really a, a great opportunity. Very exciting. Uh, and then for the next, let's call it five years up until um, I was 20 years old, was competing very seriously in a discipline called moguls, bumps and jumps. So, you know, go down the moguls, hit the jumps, go down the moguls. Wow. Uh, I competed very seriously at that uh, up until the Torino Olympics, uh, where unfortunately I didn't make it. It was uh, an alternate just sitting outside the, um, the gate. But So how many people make the Olympic team for that? Yeah, so it's uh, four. Four. So four people make it, and I was effectively number five. Oh. <laughs> uh, but that, that was a great opportunity then to, to kind of move so into coaching if, mode. If you're trained to become a potential Olympian, like what goes into that? It must be insane in terms of the hours and commitment you have to make to be yeah, after that After a certain point, I think in any sport, um, is that it's not so much physical after a certain point. It becomes a very mental thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was per- certain transitions where I would say, you know, physically, everybody was kind of at the same stage, but then, you know, mentally, you could start to see people who could handle the stress of it, the mm-hmm. ones who could be really focused in the gate, who knew kind of their own capability and were able to, you know, do very well with it. Uh, and there was others who, you know, kind of pushed them off their edge a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, I think half of the sport and half of any sport is really kind of that the mental training, the discipline, the, the comfort and focus. And so, 
uh, it was very fun to be part of a team, even for an individual sport, where you got to help other people kind of work through those um, things, especially when they're going up against a big competition uh, like the Olympics or, or many of the other ones like nationals, etc. Did you have like a pre-race routine? Oh yeah, I had I had my uh, standard thing, which was always a kind of a, a quiet song, and then would always go into like heavy metal, actually. Okay, give uh, me examples. And, and like crazy bands like Megadeth yeah. and like all these you other get kind fired of, up. Oh yeah, get, and then you go back into this. Okay, I got to calm down. I'm like really too pumped up, <laughs> and so you know probably for the next minute before you really go on, you kind of warm up your muscles, do fast twitch. So, you know, putting your tips and tails and kind of slapping them on the, the snow a little bit, getting the quick titch muscles going. Uh, and then you're kind of at this great moment where you're in the gate right at the precipice and you're just kind of calm and you kind of know what needs to happen. And you're not really sure what's going to happen in front of you. Yeah. You know, the blue ice moguls in front of you. But then you just kind of kick out and you trust yourself to do it. So you were doing like moguls and then doing the jumps too. Yeah. So it's it's kind of wow. a crazy thing where you go down these blue ice moguls, you hit a jump at some pretty high speed, you go do some flip, right? And then you kind of land back in the moguls and then keep going. Then you hit another jump and keep going. What, what was the worst wipeout? Like I'm just like so the, I would be wiping out every time. The worst wipeout is is this. You know, you know your body, and I knew my body was you know, struggling to some extent, especially my right knee because of the, the tension the pounding, you kind of put yeah, on. Moguls. And so you know, there was a competition, I think it was a Arapahoe Basin in, uh, or maybe it was Calgary. Anyways, it was one of these big, big competition. It was a national competition. Uh, and right before the second jump kind of lost my edge a little bit. And so hit the second jump in a really weird way and landed on the front side of a mogul uh, and ended up blowing out my knee kind of stumbling across the, the finish line there. Uh, and then that, actually was a great benefit in my mind of you know, having the injury that came from that actually was a period of six months of like mental hardening, mm-hmm. which then the very next race of the next season was the race that I ended up making the, the team on. Wow. Cause you just come in and you just have the, I, this is the chance to do it. Right. So you just did it. Well, so I can relate to the music part and uh, I've, you know, so when I was playing sports, like whether it was the uh, you know, late eighties in high school or early nineties in college, so I've transferred that to my, my kids. So unfortunately, or fortunately, like my uh, two daughters, you know, they play field hockey and run track. And uh, the song that I always play for them is Stone Temple Pilots Plush. Oh, so they know that song yeah. inside and out, which I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> right before I, you know, before I get out of the car. Exactly, you get yeah. wound up in that. So uh, that's too funny. All right, well, let's, um, you know, talk about, you know, kind of fast forward after that. So obviously you uh, went to Cornell. Uh, you know, so what was the thinking, you know, did you finally say, Hey, the skiing thing, you know, it's time to go to Cornell. A lot of the guidance of the people in my kind of sport was that you should not go to college. This is kind of a peak period to capitalize on the sport, really do well. Uh, because that's kind of where you, you make it. If you want, it is a full-time job. Yeah. yeah, So you're, you know, at this kind of 18 people are confronted with this decision, whether you go to school or you pursue this thing. Uh, and against lots of advice, I actually decided that I wanted to try and do both. So I ended up figuring out what is the intersection of a great engineering school and a place where I could commute to some extent to uh, a ski resort. And so that really left about you know two or three college options uh, and ended up going to Cornell, which had Lake Placid, which was a couple hours away. So you're going to an Ivy League school studying engineering while trying to train to become an Olympian. Yeah. <laughs> 
for for a couple of years, uh, you know, at the detriment of, you know, those first two years, I would say, uh, you know, my grades weren't necessarily great. My social life was non-existent. Um, so it was a commitment to it. But, you know, I think after the fact, it, it taught time management. And so after about those two years, um, not going to Torino and then uh, pushing forward with academics, I think it gave me the idea that, you know, at the end of the day, the mind lasts a lot longer than the body. And so I decided to, you know, continue investing and um, really dug in at school, uh, ended up actually graduating near the top of the class at Cornell, which was a, a great turnaround story, if you will, uh, and ended up then going into you know, the, the world of uh, business and finance and you know, started out going into to Wall Street, which was at the time very in vogue. Uh, so Goldman. Yeah, which was a, it was a good opportunity, you know, I think. Mm -hmm. Certainly a great firm, a lot to learn there. Uh, and I was actually doing volatility modeling so for currencies, actually. And so, you know, currencies trade up and down, and there's actually a volatility to those. And what's more interesting is what is the volatility of the volatility? And so my whole job, you know, you know entry hour to exit hour of the day was figuring out how to model volatility and do it algorithmically and figure out how to make um, statistical arbitrage based on that. So understand where it's going before the market and then actually uh, make investments without human intervention on that. And that was kind of the beginning of my career, uh, you know, post-skiing and you know, starting into the, the world of business fuel. And then you worked at, at Apple for a stretch. Mm -hmm. What were you doing at Apple? Yeah, that was actually programming. Uh, and it was at iTunes. So if you remember iTunes back in the day, they had this uh, pricing model where it was 99 cents whatever mm -hmm. it was. Yeah, $1.29. $0.69, cents, $0.99, and cents $1.29. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. um, we were basically writing the models to decide which one of those price points it should be and also expanding what should be the other price points in different geographies because those price points might actually make sense in Bolivia or some XYZ place. Mm -hmm. And so we were actually writing the models to figure out what is the one that's going to maximize iTunes profitability and uh, help people discover great content at you know, reasonable prices. And so we were, again, kind of doing this um, algorithmic uh, building towards what are the right price points for particular things. So did you learn anything, you know, the Apple experience? Was there anything you took away from that? that... You know, people talk a little bit about the Apple culture, which is interesting to, to observe because most organizations that I've ever seen, and you know, I, I find success in collaboration between disparate parts of an organization. This was a very different animal in that the people in the cubes who were next to me, I actually couldn't know what they were working on. It's so kind even of a, though you're working yeah, at truly, the same company, truly an insulated you thing. You signed a gazillion and, NDAs, <laughs> and so I don't, I don't know wow. the amount of rework that happens because of that. Mm -hmm. But it also creates little pockets of totally isolated innovation that are disjoint to anything the rest of the company is sort of doing. So you're not really subject to those ones, but you also don't really know what other people are doing. Right. Uh, so, so it's very surface level conversations. I, so I, and to this date, I've never seen anything like that. And mm -hmm. I think that was just a reflection of kind of the command and control uh, type culture that was there, you know, in the cafeteria one day, you know, Steve Jobs comes down and he says, oh, it's too messy. All the lines are like, you know, kind of snaking around everybody. And so he literally in the cafeteria started organizing people into like thoughtful lines. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I, you know, so it, just a, a reflection. It was a, a great experience. Um, it was fun to be 
you know, exposed to the you know, Silicon Valley culture right. and kind of the, the way they were building that company. So then, then you ended up at CPG, Procter yeah. & Gamble. Yeah, so CPG. What? So there was an opportunity to um, build out a direct-to-consumer business at Procter & Gamble. So this was in the moment where one of the lead brand managers uh, of Gillette, and, uh, the shave, uh, ended up to go spin out and start Dollar Shave Club, a competitor uh, to Gillette. Wow. So P&G realizes this, and they realize we have to do some direct-to-consumer business. Right. And so there was a, a brand manager, myself as a coder, um, and one merchandiser. So person who was going to determine the stores, myself to help build and stand up the e-commerce websites, and one person to fill the products into those e-commerce websites. And that was our little Skunk Works team. Wow. And we stood up uh, seven storefronts, some are that are still there today. Uh, and the ones that were probably the most successful were the ones that were high value and low weight to ship to somebody's uh, doorstep. So they were inherently high margin, but cheap to ship. So think of those as razors. So we started uh, theartofshaving.com as one of them um, and a bunch of other prestige brands, as we called them. And so, uh, yeah, you can make a, a lot more on those types of products as opposed to Pampers and Tide, which are very expensive and they're really pretty thin margin. So you can't really make money shipping them to people's doorsteps. So we ended up giving that kind of business over to Amazons and Targets. Mm-hmm. And with, with the uh, the raises, were they trying to do the subscription model? Yeah, too? so we were, we were trying to figure out subscription, yeah. uh, buy directly online. So you going to buy your own, you know, razor, uh, and it was interesting because there's sort of a, a channel conflict there when most of your sales are going through Amazon or Walmart, uh, and then you're building what is effectively sort of a competitor to those, mm-hmm. uh, but also a, a way to build debtful relationships with your customers. So we, we did that. It turned out to be one of the fastest growing channels of the company. Uh, and by the time I left, after three years, we were doing you know, $22 million of revenue. Wow. Um, and then through that experience, had the chance to hear the same thing over and over from brand managers mm-hmm. who we were talking to. And what they were saying was, people are talking about our product, whether it's Tide or Pampers or Febreze in social media. Mm-hmm. You know, People are tweeting out, uh, I don't like the way this Febreze smells. This Aloha scent doesn't, doesn't smell good. Um, but it was a great source of consumer market knowledge. So what do consumers actually feel about our product? Right. And so I ended up starting a company specifically around mining that social media sentiment and packaging it up and selling it back to brands. So you know, we would charge you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars to brands to mine social media data, which was effectively free and sell it back to the brands. Uh, And it was actually really helpful uh, consumer research for a lot of these brands to understand how are people interacting with it, what do they like, not like, and uh, actually ended up being part of uh, an innovation uh, part of Procter & Gamble and a bunch of other CPGs like Mondelez and Nestle. And this was back in the Valley, or? No, so this was actually um, in Cincinnati, where P&G was, um, and Chicago. And then we ended up uh, selling that company uh, more because somebody wanted the technology than they wanted, you know, our kind of, um, you know, us to be involved with the company ongoing. Mm -hmm. So ended up um, exiting and selling that, beginning to angel invest, and then uh, made the decision that I really liked angel investing and uh, went to to business school uh, back here in Boston and then, you know, been here since. So, how did you get into angel investing? Like, how do you kind of just get that interest and start to dabble in it? Like, you know, for I mean, this is you know, 
one, interesting to hear how you got into it, but two, for people that might be interested in, in doing it themselves. Yeah. I think it's about being exposed to the interesting entrepreneurs. So building a company, you're already kind of inherently plugged into the ebb and flow of the entrepreneurial ecosystem, you're kind of interacting with the same players, the same uh, you know events, the same uh, publications like VentureFizz. And so you're you know, kind of in that ecosystem. And so you start to understand what are the interesting companies that are out there. And really when it, at that earliest stage of investing, kind of angel and seed, comes down to a belief in people and you start to see it. that person's going to do something incredible and often forget about, you know, what they're doing. It's more about this individual is going to go do something incredible and I want to help them realize that. But and how so, are you sourcing your, your, your deals, like yeah, finding these companies? That, like, know, most of them it, are flying under the radar where they're not getting, you know, press. Well, because you're plugged into that community. So you already okay. know when, you know, Keith is going to go do a new interesting opportunity. So you're dialed into that whole scene. Yeah, so you're, you're part dialed in, and then uh, other ones that are a little bit more advanced, and you're kind of reading the publications, or you're, uh, you know, you're specifically interested in a domain, whatever that is. Uh, you start to know who are the, the people who are in that domain, and when they are ready to go start a project, you can help them go. And what, how was your experience at HBS? It was good. Uh, you know, I, I always think of this as it was a value accretive two years. Like, I'm, I'm glad I did it. My whole purpose there was actually uh, part get the stamp, which was, you know, one thing. Also build a, a network of people in diverse industries, you know, not just, you know, startups or not, you know, just CPG or not just, you know, finance. Uh, and that, that was great. And I, I still think my longest term friends are going to be from that kind of cohort of people. Uh, it's just a exceptional way to, to learn. And, you know, it's interesting as they do this thing, the case method, and you, you probably don't remember what the specifics of a, a case are, but you remember how the discussion evolved around it. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's very much like venture in the sense where it's, it's pattern recognition across thousands and thousands of cases or looking at thousands and thousands of pitch checks. You start to be able to, to tease out what is the interesting pieces and the ones that you really need to focus on. It's... Um, I think good training for uh, environments of a paucity of information in which you can pick out what are the most meaningful ones and the areas you need to get more clear on. Well, what's been great about HBS is the evolution of how so many of the students are now like looking at starting companies and entrepreneurship versus the traditional management consulting, iBanking route. Yeah. So during your time there, like you were part of the uh, startup tribe and entrepreneurship clubs. So were you actually trying to come up with your own ideas to start another company? Yeah, or? so I, I was, you know, and that was actually part of my intent working at Founder Collective. Okay. Uh, they basically, you know, took the risk uh, to kind of incubate me and spend some time to figure out what is the uh, opportunity to go build. Spent a lot of time in peer-to-peer -peer insurance. So mm -hmm. imagine you and me insuring each other as opposed to going through some kind of intermediary. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that we spent a lot of time on that, um, some... Descendants of that idea are things like Lemonade and others. Sure. Uh, and we, we actually couldn't get the regulatory approval within you know, something like a year and a half. So we decided that any gated go-to-market, we really didn't want to be part of. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just got hooked because I was looking at a bunch of pitch decks. And I was like, this is just really, really fun. Uh, and so I, I kind of got the bug there and, you know, love the guys at Founder Collective. You know, I think it's venture is a part bullshit industry where you can't really do it until you've done it. Mm-hmm. And so what was great is they took a risk to you know, help me understand it. And 
in, in the same way, we want to do that at Underscore. So we'll be hiring for summer interns and you know, hopefully some of your uh, podcast listeners may be of that. And you know, if so, you know, email me. would love to get uh, a great intern from uh, you know, any place in the world if they really care that they want to uh, invest in the next generation of startups and build companies alongside us. And you know, I hope it starts as a stepping stone for many people to get into angel investing or just see the world of venture, even if they want to build a company it's great to spend some time at a venture firm because you get to see uh, the other side of the table, how they think about it. And so you can go build your own you know, startup with more efficacy. Yeah. I mean, talk about, a you know, to spend time as a summer associate at a VC firm to see all those pitch decks and to go off and either start your own company or continue a career in VC. It's just amazing experience. But it seemed like you always had this. Uh, career path into venture, like even going back to Cornell, you were part of you know the, the venture capital club, and so so was this sense of entrepreneurship and you know whether it's investing or starting your own company was that something that you know you learned early on? Is you know was that part of your family DNA? Yeah, you know, I th- there's this great debate, and we even have it here at Underscore of like, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? Yeah, I, it, and I actually have no idea. Yeah, yeah I think it's both. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is too. Um, you know, and I would say in my world growing up, I think there was a, a tolerance for risk. And, and part of that was my parents were both entrepreneurs. Uh, my you know, dad started a, a company called Sundex, which was very similar to QuickBooks that came later. Uh, and my mom was involved in um, dialing cards. So if you remember when you have to call internationally, uh, you had to punch, you know, a bunch of those things. You'd go and get that in the card to do that. Sure. Uh, that one of those was her business. Um, and so we kind of grew up just around that and kind of there was this always sense of, you know, go, go make it, go do your thing. Uh, and so yeah, it was fun to, to grow up around that kind of environment. And I think that kind of taught comfort with risk, comfort with uncertainty. Uh, and so I think that's played out. And then I think there's other people who are, you know, sitting at a company today and they've been innovating kind of an entrepreneur, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they're ready to go make a jump to start something new. Uh, and it's fun for us to get to meet those kind of folks and, you know, help them with their first, you know, investment or capital, the kind of confidence if you're providing for a family and, you know, you have a paycheck to depend on because you have a mortgage and you have to pay for your kids to go to, you know, XYZ things. Uh, it's hard to start a startup. And so, you know, I think it's important for, you know, angel investors, pre-seed investors and others to, to help kind of ease that transition and, uh, write those first risky checks and, you know, underscores is happy to do that generally in, in the Boston area where we are most helpful, but also in New York and, and more broadly. Let's talk about underscore. So, sure. you know, there's been this kind of next generation of investors here in town, which underscore is one of them. So how did that, how did the firm come about? How did you get involved with, with Michael Scott and John Pierce? Yeah. So uh, I got to know Michael a little bit while at HBS. He taught a class called Startup Secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're in the startup scene, you want to go, you know, be plugged into that. It's kind of just a meeting spot, but you also learn frameworks for how to build a company, uh, how to think about a go-to-market, all these kinds of things from idea to IPO. Uh, it's great content. Um, outside of that, you know, was getting to know him there, was at Founder Collective, and then one day, you know, one of the partners there, David Frankel, said, I don't know, Michael Scott, I think he's going to go do this new firm. Uh, myself coming up on graduation, not with the 
right um, business that I really wanted to go forward on was actually uh, interviewing at a bunch of venture firms because I knew it was kind of the direction I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually had an offer uh, to go out to a Silicon Valley firm. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of had this chance to sit down with Michael, you know, after a cold email, literally cold emailed him and wow. said, let's get coffee. And we sat down, and there was this other guy in the coffee booth next to him, which was John Pierce. Yeah. Didn't say one word. <laughs> Didn't say one word this whole, you know, coffee meeting. Uh, Michael starts asking, you know, what's your perfect day? It was kind of like a weird interview. And um, after that, you know, they needed somebody who um, was able to dig in and do the work, a lot of the initial fund modeling. Uh, these guys, Michael and John, were actually paying me out of their own personal checkbook. Wow. You know, it was like <laughs> yeah. the 16th of the month or something, and I was like, and I get the check and uh, we literally that that amount was exactly what my rent is mm-hmm. uh, after tax so so we literally you know it was just enough uh, and we did that for nine months to uh, start the first venture fund uh, which was 85 million uh, which we've uh, actively made our initial investments in and have you know follow-on capital for those and so we went out and raised uh, a second venture fund uh, and it continued to add into the team, uh, Lily Lyman, who's going to be probably the best investor out of all of us, a um, young guy named Sherman now, uh, and more recently, Devin and Jenny and Jimmy. And so we, we've basically doubled our team in the last you know, six months. That's amazing. And, and you just announced your second fund, which was how much? Yeah, so it's $140 million. Wow. Um, you know, Most of it's actually our existing uh, LPs, which are mostly Boston institutions, mm-hmm. um, you know, the academic institutions you would know, the children's hospitals and other mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, and so we, we ended up, the bulk of it was that, and then we actually ended up taking two more investors to kind of fill out the uh, 140. So, yeah, small LP base of um, you know, great institutions, and for us that's actually um, a positive when we think we uh, support great entrepreneurs and those entrepreneurs create returns for themselves as well as for underscore, and more importantly, for the people that back us, which are you know, children's hospitals. And when we can say, we made a, a great company in Boston, supported an incredible entrepreneur to do that, and we're able to build a new wing on a hospital, um, and able to grow underscore, and what we can accomplish in terms of supporting entrepreneurship, that to me is kind of the goal for the next 10 years. Well, what is the uh, you know the, the thesis that you're focused on in terms of investments, what stage, what what the details there? Yeah, so we're, we're very early stage. So we do uh, what we call earliest, um, which I would call pre-seed, angel. Seed is the sweet spot. Series A is kind of the second sweet spot. We think there's a, a Series A gap here in Boston, which is where we want to fill. Uh, in fact, I would love for even more Series A investors to be in Boston because a lot of the, the old guard, if you will, has kind of moved west, yeah. uh, which has been you know, on one hand, you know, good for underscore because we get to see a lot of the most interesting opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we would love to, you know, have other partners in the ecosystem that we can, you know, uh, work with to help companies get to the next stage. And what, like, what areas of technology is it uh, kind of yeah. agnostic, or is there specific? It's, areas? it's pretty simple. So, um, software companies that don't have a gated go-to-market and are generally in Boston. We have a pretty strong Boston bias. Mm-hmm. We think there's enough opportunity here to focus on that for the next you know, couple funds, if, if any. Good. Uh, now, what about the the firm itself? Like, the, You guys do a lot as far as building a community and uh, like a platform. So there's, you know, there's a, the underscore VC core community, which includes partners and syndicates and core summits. Like, what, 
what does that mean? What is, yeah, so um, Keith, imagine you're building a company. Mm-hmm. Let's call it Domain X. Okay. Right. So you probably a want to have expertise in Domain X to help you navigate that, understand how the market lays out. Uh, so I call that domain specific knowledge. There's also functional specific knowledge of you need a world class go to market sales leader or a marketer or just perspective from one of those types of people. Um, and I call that functional specific knowledge. And then there's also stage specific knowledge, which is at a seed, we need this kind of um, ability to navigate. What do we really have to prove? Series A, Series B, beyond. And so every single one of those domains, functions, and stage, you need a different group of people around the table. And there's no venture fund in the entire world who could have those people, you know, in-house on staff. Right. And so we fundamentally, from the very beginning, approached this very differently and said, what if you partnered with people in the community, literally had the community helping each other build these companies, right? When you need to figure out how to crack this new market segment uh, or drum up customers, uh, you partner with these people in the, the core community. And so we've literally actively been uh, curating in the domains we care about, the functions we think are important, and the stages that we invest at, a group of people who are world experts at those things. And we uh, actually partner with them in terms of giving our shares in the company. So if we invest, we're going to take shares of our investment and give them to those people uh, to help us build the company. So that's unique. Like I, Yeah. And so it's kind of like, it's almost like advisory shares to right. some extent. Yeah. Uh, but it's more... There's uh, an incentive that there's alignment. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly that. Um, and, you know, everybody wants to be aligned to making the next great companies. Uh, right here in Boston, and so it's got a nice uh, way to bring people together. And you know, the the other benefit is uh, the A's like to know the A's, and so you know, if you bring a great group of people together, you know, they often don't even get a chance to you know intersect the the thought leaders in you know marketing don't often get together. And so when we bring an investment opportunity where we need help in that particular area, they get a chance to come together and help somebody who's trying to figure that out. Let's talk about a recent investment, Forge AI. Yeah, very what, excited about this. What, what was uh, it, what are they working on, and what was it that you know, led you to making an investment? Yeah. So Forge is taking um, a very big idea, which is taking unstructured data in the world and actually adding structure to it, so you can actually make it machine readable. So think of it as the refinery for data for intelligent machines. So if you have a machine learning algorithm and it needs a particular data set, they will have done a lot of the pre-gronking and you can pick up that data stream there. And so they're selling uh, to financial institutions, although the aperture of what they can do with it is, is much bigger. Uh, and, you know, the, the thesis around this one um, was A, just around the people. Um, so uh, Jennifer Lum uh, was a, a core community member, uh, ended up starting the company alongside Jim Crowley, uh, who's just an incredible operator, one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever seen. And so we wrote the seed check-in, uh, and then just more recently ended up uh, announcing the Series A investment, which we left. And uh, very excited about that one. Yeah, amazing yeah. founding team, no doubt. Like, proven track record. Like... Yeah. No, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, again, it's, it's just people, and these are just exceptional entrepreneurs, and they're going to find their way to uh, a big outcome no matter what. Now, something that I also thought was pretty interesting was, um, 
you know, you first. So this is um, where you're providing, um, you know, student founders, first time founders, a lot of guidance and mentorship. Yeah. yeah. And you can think of this as the, the intersection part of kind of startup secrets that, that Michael was doing, as well as a place for somebody who wants to start a company, kind of that we talked about earlier. Somebody who's sitting at a company and says, I want to go start a company but I don't know necessarily how to go about the next earliest stages of it. You want to provide the place where somebody could go figure that out and mm-hmm. give them the, the resources to do that, whether that's um, capital, which is one thing, uh, more specifically time and expertise from the community who says, you know, when I was starting, these were the things I kind of navigated and they kind of parachute in and, and help these founders and um, entrepreneurs start. And, you know, there's a lot of great examples of this, you know, somebody sitting at, Veracode, who spun out to go start a new cloud infrastructure company, you know, incubated as one person without, you know, barely an idea at the time and now has gone on to do a, a seed in the Series A beyond. And, you know, that's one of the first stories. And then, you know, we're excited about this next summer. Uh, we're going to be launching this part for the academics, um, you know, the people who are you know, at HBS or BU or, you know, anywhere um, starting companies and help them get a landing pad as well as uh, other people who are you know, out and about and are ready to make the leap, which is never easy. Well, what's great about that program is it also helps keep great founders here, right? Yeah. So you're providing that yeah. launching pad versus going west to find capital. And... Yeah, well, you know, at the end of the day, you need partners to help you build. Uh, you know, there's, there's writing a check and, you know, I don't personally find writing a check very fulfilling, but when I see, uh, you know, companies like Commonwealth Crypto or, uh, you know, a day who's here uh, incubating in our space and they get to, you know, add a new seat, you come in on, you know, Monday and there's a new seat full. That to me is um, fun to see our, you know, investment dollars going to create, you know, these teams and help them realize what they want to accomplish. And I think that's, honestly, it's a localized ground game. I think you, if you want to do this well, you have to put in the time and energy and effort to help these companies. And so that's why we actually have um, some incubation space. We're doubling the incubation space um, here at Old City Hall. Uh, and so we'll be kind of blowing through this wall on the, the other side of this uh, meeting room here and adding a whole new, I think, 20 desks for entrepreneurs, right? Because you shouldn't be spending your burn rate against office space. space. It's it's one more engineer. That's a higher likelihood you'll, you know, keep progressing and and knock it out of the park. And so for us, that's easy to do. And it's just, honestly, it's a lot more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as technology evolves, obviously you got to stay kind of ahead of the the curve. So you had a recent blog post that talked about Web Mm 3.0. So so what's your, your vision of that? Yeah, no, it's it's big, and you know I think there's lots of different lenses you could take on this. Uh, we spend a lot of time in, in blockchain and crypto here, and um, the the observation, the origin of this article was actually when the head of uh, Lambda, which is uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, serverless part of the company, it's kind of the next generation of cloud infrastructure. The head of that, who is a, a good friend went to go leave to another company called Coinbase. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting there thinking about, like, that is a really interesting career move. Why would one person who's at the forefront of cloud infrastructure and serverless, which is, you know, the next generation you've heard of, you know, uh, VMs and then containers, serverless is kind of the next next one of those. And, okay. and we have a few investments in that space. Um, 
even to go start this. And so the reflection there is it made me realize that these serverless functions, which instead of you renting a computer at Amazon and you know you kind of have that box, it became uh, I'll just rent it for a little bit. And then it's now not rent it for a little bit. It's rent it for just the seconds I need to do this uh, transaction or this kind of load. Um, and that's what serverless is. So you pay only for this little, little bit of compute resource in a very ephemeral way. It's, it's what's called stateless computing. And so you have this thing that doesn't really, you know, just kind of um, executes and then doesn't execute. And then you have blockchains, which are these state machines, which are inherently all they're really good at doing is maintaining state. And so the combination of the thing that is completely stateless, which is serverless infrastructure, and a complete state instrument, which is blockchain, mm-hmm. uh, the combination of these two is actually a really interesting area. Um, and to make it you know, a little bit more real for you, uh, imagine you have a uh, Tesla car, mm-hmm. and this Tesla car uh, is connected to the internet, and you have a loan against it, which is stored in a smart contract on the blockchain. Uh, effectively, those could sit in uh, escrow on the blockchain. And if you don't make your loan payment, Without any human intervention, the car could automatically lock mm-hmm. and pay for the compute resource to do that locking uh, through the ESCO that it's holding on the blockchain. And so this is what I'm saying between a, a state machine, mm-hmm. which is blockchain, and a stateless machine, uh, which is the serverless cloud infrastructure. And so it's yeah, next generation of cloud infrastructure, Web3, we believe is going to be rewired as two clouds. One is a stateless one, and one is a stateful one. And that's what that was. Uh, what, what other areas of technology are kind of on your radar that really fascinated about kind of, you know, thinking deeply about? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, we're very entrepreneurial first. Mm-hmm. So for me to ever be smart enough to say this is exactly what the right investment right. is in this area, yeah. Yeah. You, you have to be crazy. Yeah. But what my job is, is to pick big vectors of technology mm-hmm. and then find the most exceptional people in those domains. And so the big vectors of technology, I can tell you what, what I think those are. Um, we believe in next-generation cloud infrastructures. So mm-hmm. think of these as um, serverless containers um, and blockchain, I categorically put in that. That's kind of bottom of the stack, how things get done. And then there's um, kind of top of the stack, which is how they emerge in software applications, SaaS traditionally. Um, and then we think there's also an intelligent layer between those, which is AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we're spending a lot of our time uh, kind of categorically in those domains, both top of the stack and bottom of the stack. So how, if someone's interested in uh, raising capital, mm-hmm. uh, so how do they get on your radar? Like what's the best way, of, what advice would you give to founders trying to raise capital? Yeah, I mean, ideally they know someone in our community, uh, but there's always great examples of people who are not necessarily already in our community. And uh, the way you know, they can get to us is you know, come to us and ping us if you know, some of the best entrepreneurs I've ever seen are just relentless and they'll you know, hit you up on many different vectors and you, you know, it's actually a good sign of somebody who's resilient enough to, to go do that. Uh, but generally warm interactions are the best. Uh, outside of that, you know, what would advice I would have for uh, founders starting a company? I think if you're coming into a pitch meeting, I think it's great to bring your whole team. Okay. I think, you know, a lot of people say, you know, just be the missionary, CEO, go go talk. I'll tell you, you can learn so much more and, you know, you prevent uh, 
multiple meetings by just having the, the whole team there or you know the key members of the team there at the very beginning uh, because it nobody builds a company by themselves it's actually the people who are around the table mm-hmm. like ourselves right now and to, to get to hear the, the way you're thinking about the opportunity and, and you know XYZ the other people on the team you just get so much more and it can get you really really excited about it versus you know one person telling the story uh, and so you take what is you know multiple meetings and turn it into kind of just one that's great advice. So, yeah, because yeah, recently I heard, you know, entrepreneurs make the mistake of, um, you know, in the pitch deck, they put the, the team slide at the end when it's all about the team. So that no, you go, it's like, all, first all I care about. And, like, like, deep on the team, not just... If I go through a pitch deck, it's the very first thing. I actually skip over the entire idea outside of kind of the context of what it is. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go to the team slide and say, who on this team is uniquely qualified to understand this market space? So how do you determine valuations? Like this is something I'm just always fascinated yeah. by. Like, and I think I don't know if entrepreneurs get too hung up on it or like what the case may be. But how do you determine a valuation of a company that's such a, at an early stage? Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. As somebody who's very deeply analytical by nature, mm-hmm. uh, it was one of the most frustrating things when I got stuck in or started in venture. You know, it was kind of finger in the wind. I'm like, oh, what's the valuation? Um, but the more time has gone on, I realize it falls very naturally out of three things. One is that it is what is the right amount of capital? Like truly, what is the amount of money you need to get to the next stage of financing plus a little buffer? And that's one input to this. The second is, okay, how incentivized are the founders? I don't think there's, you know, why would we ever want to back something where the founders aren't like properly excited and energized by um you know, their, their stake in the company. And then third is the option pool, because, again, nobody builds these alone. You need to have a, a strong option pool to bring in the right talent uh, to help you build the company. And so actually between the capital, how much the founders are incentivized and make sure they're properly, and the amount of option pool to bring in the people that will help you actually realize that, the valuation falls very naturally out of that. Got it, okay. Yeah. Now, you are, uh, you know, largely focused on, the Boston tech scene, and even you know when you announced the new fund, you, you talked about we're doubling down on Boston, which is awesome and exciting. So what's um, what's the state of the the Boston tech scene? Like what 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 do you think is like the momentum? Like what can Boston do to improve? Yeah, no, I, I mean I'm excited about it. You know, I think Boston doesn't uh, toot its own horn enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's exceptional things happening here. I mean, there's there are founders that across the world, I think, should be uh, respected and doing incredibly interesting things. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want us to say we're, we're there yet. You know, I think we're, you know, one Facebook in Boston away from an incredibly thriving ecosystem. I mean, a company like that can truly uh, do different things. Sure. Um, but that said, you know, there's a lot of great companies that are being built. Um, and in terms of improving, I think there's always this, lifeblood that's flowing through Boston. It's one of the unique assets, right, of Boston. And I think we should play into that more and help students who are at these universities connect with the interesting startups that are happening. Um, and I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of interesting programs doing this, but it's, it's one I would put even more fuel on the fire of uh, because, you know, there's just not even visibility to students in academia who are building these companies uh, that they're really cool stuff going on that you could go join. And so instead of that, they start, you know, booting up and uh, looking for opportunities everywhere else in the, the country. Yeah, they do the and, West Coast tech track. And, yeah, and, you know, mm-hmm. that's 
there's there's great things about that, but if, if I was building a company, I think there's a huge benefit to be in Boston yeah. for just a talent perspective too. And the ta- and the, the, the school thing is a, a struggle, but it's come so far. Like I think back, you know, five plus years ago, where there was just like no interaction with the student population, maybe even further, I think. But it's uh, it's come a long way. But there's still, I think, the challenge is. You know, they, they come and they graduate, and then there's a new, fresh class every single year that you got to educate that, hey, there's a tech scene here, and there's a yeah. lot going on. Um, and I think they're always surprised by the companies that are here that you didn't know were headquartered here in Boston. Yeah. So if, you know, you have podcast listeners who are kind of of that demographic, you know, make sure to, to look at our portfolio page, and I'd be happy to connect you with any of those um, portfolio companies uh, for the jobs that they have available. So let me know. So what are two companies in the Boston tech scene that you're excited about that are, you know, not portfolio companies? Interesting. Um, gosh, there's, there's a couple. Uh, I definitely have great regard for the guys over at Toast, guys and gals over at Toast. I think they've done incredible things. Uh, I, I put that in the category of if Underscore had raised our first venture fund mm-hmm. earlier, like that we would love to have been you know, well, involved the, in that. There's a, there's a theme, um, you know, the Indeca, right? The, the alumni from Indeca was amazing. Like Steve Pop and that, yeah, he had the, his like little SWAT team that was like doing the skunk work projects at Indeca and all those people have gone off and started yeah. Toast and um, Salsify and... Salsify, Kairos, Parallel Wireless. Yeah. Uh, XYZ. Uh, and in fact, we, we think there'll be more of those. I think Toast is the next generation of one of those companies. Yeah, totally. I think it will be a, a mafia company. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and so with, I think they're a great, great company. Very excited to see what they do. Um, really, outside, really do yeah. I walk into a restaurant now and see it not be in a Toast POS? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's good, good business ball. Hard to get in there, but once you're in there, you get uh, transactional revenue, which is great. Scales with time. Um, and so, you know, that's that's probably one company. I also have great respect for um, Jeremy Lair and Circle. You know, I categorically, you know, in the world of crypto, like it is a really important institution. And uh, Jeremy just stands out as one of those incredible entrepreneurs that you can just never, ever get in the way of. And, and you know, I, I love to see those kind of people uh, building companies uh, right here. And, you know, I think there'll be, again, some really interesting descendants of, of Circle. Uh, that it will be another one of those mafia companies. And so, Agreed. Yeah, they're or, monstrous companies. Yeah, and there's, you know, I wish, you know, we could go on for another hour about, like, other yeah. really cool companies. And, you know, I think our our hope for the next fund and even, you know, Fund One is you know, we want to be supporting all of those companies uh, and the, the next generation of founders that's been out of them. Very cool. So uh, outside of investing, you still like to get out there and ski, or I do. Else? Yeah, it's uh, it's shifted now that I'm teaching my wife how to ski, and mm-hmm. you know we're we're having fun with that. And yeah, I, you know I think um, you know, you can have a lot of things that interest you, but you probably have one hobby. Yep. My hobby is still skiing, yeah. um, and I find it really fun. In fact, uh, because it's not a job anymore, mm-hmm. it's actually I enjoy it. You know, you kind of lose the fun of it after a certain point in time when you're competing, right. and so now I'm just. Uh, back in it and really enjoying it and you know, even learning some some new things like telemarketing and other things like that um, which has been very fun that's awesome well richard thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your experience yeah. and background and obviously all the great things you're doing with uh, investing back into the boston tech scene and of course the uh the words of advice for entrepreneurs yeah well thank you keith thank you for uh having me on and, and congrats on all you've done it's great to see and uh happy to be helpful where we can be 
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.